Our scripture comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it into a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people whom you brought, out, you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume, consume them. And of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, I pray that you speak through me and when and where necessary in spite of me. And Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. In your name we pray. Amen. This morning, in the time that I have with you all, I'd like to preach and teach on a sermon entitled, 24 Carat Magic. 24 Carat Magic. It is the sound of mischief that moves mountains in this morning's molten moment in Exodus. Aaron is coaxed by an anxious Israel to fashion a god to be worshipped, and the irreverent revelry of misrepresented redemption is so raucous and rowdy that it stirs up the wrath of the Lord on the mountain. The waft of revelry, the clamor of covenant-breaking, and the dissonance of disobedience of the divine 
serve not simply as a cautionary tale of the Creator, but also a story of a steadfast Savior swayed by an advocate, a leader who remembers. The sprightly pop star Bruno Mars has been on his 24-karat magic tour for the last few months. On Thursday night, he was in my hometown of Raleigh, North Carolina. The building-shaking bass that I imagine is characteristics of his live performances mingled that evening with the brilliant burst of fireworks going off during the opening night of the North Carolina State Fair. Now, the venue he performed at in Raleigh and the State Fairgrounds are side-by-side, So if you live within a two to three mile radius, you are constantly interrupted by mischief, clamor, and revelry that happens there. There are concerts, there are professional hockey games, there are football tailgates, and that's just to name a few. A few of my closest friends from middle school live in walking distance, and while that is nice when I need to go to a concert and don't want to pay for parking, they are not unlike the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who have also declared that their wrath indeed burns when traffic and timber interrupt their lives on a multiple weekly basis. We have two stories today, two stories connected by the sound of misplaced praise and a mediator who knows both Israel's hearts and God's. We are privy to two simultaneous stories on Mount Sinai this morning. There is the story of a forgetful Israel and their assistant priests at the base of the mountain, and there is the story of God and a chosen leader on top of the mountain. Forgiveness, advocacy, remembrance, forgiveness, forgetfulness, grace mixed together on Mount Sinai. And we here at Westminster are fresh off a sermon on the Ten Commandments. Last week, Larry took us through all ten These Ten Commandments chiseled on tablets signify a covenant with God and the people of Israel. Ten rules that remind us that we belong to God, and because we belong to God, we belong to each other. Now there are a lot of direct edicts, but the Ten Commandments also feature a bit of self-disclosure on God's part. And such self-disclosure might serve as a refresher for why this revelry and the response to it is actually rather predictable. First of all, God's disclosure starts with an I am plus action statement. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And it is followed by a triple knockout of Yahweh's own sovereignty and a reminder that the Lord God is jealous and can hold a grudge like none other punishing the present for the sins of the past. So it should seem pretty clear to Israel that their behavior would conjure up some good old-fashioned anger and wrath from the jealous God they so quickly forgot brought them out of the land of Egypt. However, the Israelites neither serve as cautionary dunces of yesteryear or ancient idiots, but people, simply people, flawed and forgetful people. The Israelites remind me that God has long been in the business of loving people who are either completely a hot mess or, at best, more or less okay. So the Israelites are getting antsy. Where is Moses? The leader with that shape-shifting rod is nowhere to be seen. They are between slavery and the promised land, and their connection to God has disappeared. 
There is no cloud, there is no bread falling from the sky, and now there is no Moses. They don't know what we know, that Moses will be up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. All they know is that they have to put their faith in a lead. All, all they know is that they have put their faith in a leader and a God who are nowhere to be seen. So and an impatient Israel quickly dismisses Moses as this man, a term meant to disregard and distance themselves from the leader who never really was one of them. In the fear of the unknown, we often default to distance. Moses didn't really know their plight. He was an Egyptian with neither a divine or human leader to remind them of who they are, freed people and covenant people, the Israelites turn away. They demand that something be fashioned to put to place their faith in. The Israelites remind us of our human impulse to need a God, to need something to put our hopes in and cast our fears upon. Humanity is always prone to fake gods when we forget the God who has redeemed, claimed, and sustained us. We humans are often so intent on believing in something that we will fall for anything, or in this case, create something to fall for. In the 1976 film Car Wash, starring comedian Richard Pryor, Richard Pryor plays a prosperity preacher with a shoddy gospel and a gold Cadillac who extorts money from a depressed community while immaculately dressed and cruising around in said gold Cadillac. It is 1976-style 24-carat magic. And at one point in the film, Richard Pryor's character, Daddy Rich, and his harem of disco-singing women sing a song with the chorus, You got to believe in something, so why not believe in me? Now, the theology, though flawed and meant to be comical, is also all too fitting. We set up idols of perfection, idols of wealth, idols of prosperity. We make idols of industry, be they professional sports, Hollywood, or tech. We put our faith these days as much as in Siri and Google as we do the actor and the athlete. We concoct shrines to new gods all the time because We've got to believe in something, so why not? To the Israelites at the base of the mountain, it is a calf. In their desperation to believe in something, they co-opt the bull, the calf of the Canaanites. A foreign god, a symbol of strength and fertility, is better than the unknown of Yahweh and Moses the messenger. The crafting of the calf is the curation of a foreign symbol made by the melting of the spoils of slavery. The gold jewelry that will be melted and molded into this idol, this image of a calf, is the gold that was either stolen from the Egyptians during the Exodus or given to the Israelites as some sort of reparations for over 400 years of slavery. So from the plunder of an oppressive system, the Israelites try to fashion an object worthy of praise. But in every chiseled feature given to their constructed calf, There is a shimmer of the abuse of power and the history of injustice. How can they revel in a God who brought them out of Egypt when the goal that kept them disenfranchised, disempowered, and diminished is touted as the divine's replacement? So perhaps in some way when an angry God wants to bring disaster, it is those fires of justice burning that we've sung about in hymns. 
fires of justice that burn as the recently freed continue to act as if enslaved by worshiping their creation of a God, a God who will only remind them of a life that held no promise but only persecution. So on the altar is a calf that is made out of a corrupt system and that was constructed to never benefit them. 24 karat magic. You've got to believe in something, right? This created God is whom they choose to worship at an altar. But ironically, this story on Mount Sinai interrupts the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is that place where they will be reminded of God's presence in their lives. Reminding us that where we house our worship is never as important as the object of our worship. But gold, gold is magic, right? Or at the very least, the pursuit of gold is, whether it is the three G's of gold, God, and glory that settlers used as motivation to sail, explore, and colonize, or the gold chains and medallions that adorn the necks of those who attain new money and new wealth, we are mesmerized by its shimmer and its shine. Sometimes we even seek to have gold by any means necessary, even if those means exploit and hurt others. We often live as if gold is magic. And if we are honest, we also live as if God is magic. Whether it is big G God or little G God, we call upon God for quick fixes, for self-serving prayer requests, and political maneuvering masquerading as divine will. We, too, are prone to craving some 24-karat magic. We are like the Israelites and worshiping 24-karat magic in the absence of a God who really just wants us to remember. But what happens on the mountain does not just happen at the base camp. Thankfully, it also happens on the top of the mountain. We are witness to a story of a leader who reminds God who God is and in doing so advocates for a people who deserve disaster yet are given grace. When we move to the top of the mountain, we find that God is perturbed at how quickly the very people whom God claimed have forgotten the covenant. An angry God, a jealous God, is reminded by Moses that the very people who are dancing and mischievously praising a golden calf are God's own people. The people do not belong to Moses, but to God. This is a fact that is so evident later on in Exodus that God comes down and joins Moses. Moses' impatience has made him a zero-tolerance leader for the murmuring, forgetful Israelites, and zero-tolerance leadership doesn't work well with a God who has chosen to love a people and lavish grace upon grace onto them until the end of time. So without Moses, this passage is a fodder for the theology of John Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. The fact is that we are, in fact, sinners in the hand of an angry God. The words are all there throughout the scriptures of doom and disaster pending for the disobedient. But alas, God is able to be swayed by the cries and intercessions of a mediator who goes between us the mischievous 24-karat magic-prone humans who band together to be loved by God in hopes that we can love like God. Moses intercedes, and the passage tells us that God changes God's mind. 
When God on the mountain wants to stew and be angry, Moses advocates for Israel literally in spite of himself and reminds God that God has chosen, claimed, and called these very people into covenant relationship. Now, I imagine that Moses' advocacy is a humble act. Moses has led the Israelites for some time now, and he has heard their complaints. Moses has seen their penchant towards wandering away, and yet rather than becoming a new Abraham, Moses pleads their case. Moses says to God, remember, remember the covenant of your people, the promised descendants that are to be greater than the stars that you gave to Abraham when you called him out of Ur and into Canaan. Remember this people, Israel, whose grumblings in Egypt cause you to turn your head and initiate their freedom and their redemption. Moses appeals to who God is. God is a covenant maker. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So perhaps only for emphasis and not necessarily for pop musicology, I want to return to Bruno Mars. His latest album is indeed called 24 Karat Magic, and it is reminiscent of something. You see, Bruno Mars is a musician who is well studied in the art of imitation and derivations of pop music that have gone before him, be it Elvis or the doo-wop of the 1950s or now 1980s era R&B. And when you read interviews with him, he makes this point clear. Bruno Mars is engaging in imitation, And at least proved by his record sales, imitation is the best form of flattery. Bruno Mars appeals to the masses because they need something, something that they can't seem to find in his contemporaries and pop music. Musically, Bruno is not unlike the Israelites, who when they perceive something to be lacking, fashion a replacement. 24 Karat Magic, the album, and Bruno Mars more generally invite us to remember to remember what came before, to remember the songs that shaped previous generations, the music that brought us to this present moment. Remember, that's the good word in all of this. Remember, turn away from our penchant to see nothing and create something and do the hard work of remembering. Remember the mighty acts of God who has redeemed you and called you by name and who has given you grace upon grace. And if that were not enough, promises that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and is new every morning. If we remember this, the acts of God done in the past and the acts of God still to come in the mercies of the dawn, perhaps we too might be able to resist the allure of 24 karat magic. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.